Welcome back to another episode of what was our show again? Push school on uh, court. It's been so long I couldn't remember, Greg. Um, and today, uh, Greg and I are here uh, recording with an audience for the first time. So thank you for being here. We're hoping to get some questions from the audience at the tail end of the podcast. Um, we have uh, a guest with us today, uh, Professor John Schuschler, who I'm going to be chatting with. And then we have another guest who's going to join us for the panel conversation, Dr. Andrew Ross. Uh, Andy Ross will be with us as well. All right. Oh, a couple of announcements, too. This is our first episode back for the spring. Um, we have an episode planned for next week, actually, with some former Bush School students. We're going to check in with them and see the ways in which they are out in the world practicing public service. So look out for that as well. All right. All right. Hi, John. How are you, sir? Hey, good. Yes. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is actually the... Second time I've got to chat with you. Yes. We did. We covered one of your books not too long ago in one of the early seasons of my podcast. So thanks, uh, thanks for taking the time again. So I'd like to start with, um, if you don't mind, just telling the audience who you are, uh, what your role is, and then sort of how you view yourself as a researcher and some of the things you have going on now. I know part of what we're going to talk about is a new administrative position you have, but uh, let's work. Let's work up to that. Okay, uh, so I came to the Bush School in the fall of 2016, um, courtesy of the department. I was happy to be uh, happy to apply and to get the position. I came here from uh, the Air War College, um, which is kind of a graduate school for military officers. I taught strategy there, and I, I got to the Air, Air War College by way of the University of Chicago, where I got my PhD in political science. Um, Chicago is known for a kind of three-part focus on theory, history, and security, and that kind of is the approach I tend to take to things. Um, my first book, which we've talked about, uh, was called Deceit on the Road to War. It's about uh, basically why presidents can't be candid with the public about um, war when it's on the horizon. Uh, and then I've also written a bit on realism, which is a body of international relations theory and its relevance for American foreign policy, which kind of carries through what the center does. Excellent. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the center. Um, it, a word that we haven't used yet is grand strategy. Um, and the Bush School recently uh, named the Albritton Center for Grand Strategy, of which you are a co-director. So tell us a little bit about what your, uh, what your plans are for the center, what types of things y'all are hoping to do. And then after that, I want to talk about uh, grand strategy because I want to learn about it. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, there are some things we know that the center is going to do, and there are other things that are yet to be determined. So what do we know? Um, the center was set up um, through um, generous contributions from two major donors. So the first is the family of a region of the university named Robert Albritton, and that's who the center is named after. Um, I didn't know this. I, I found out at, at our kickoff event that he had a big hand in starting Callaway Golf Clubs, which uh, the New York golfers. But, but he yes. actually does a lot of stuff. Anyway. It's important to the Air Force. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice courses on Air Force bases, as any Marine or Army officer can tell you. Um, and, uh, and the other major donor is the Charles Koch Foundation, um, and uh, you know I can say more about why they support enterprises like this, but basically the overall point of the center is to broaden the debate around American grand strategy um, at a kind of moment of flux, I'd say, in our domestic politics and in our international politics. So the, the kind of thinking is the time is right to question long-standing assumptions about the United States' role in the world, about its commitments abroad, about how it uses its power, um, and open up the debate as we kind of figure out where to go from here. Moment of flux might be the nicest way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have other terms. Other, <laughs> other terms for yeah, it. Uh, terms of endearment. Yes. Terms of endearment. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about grand strategy, because this was a, uh, I mean, uh, is not a term I was familiar with uh, until joining an international affairs department and getting to know you gentlemen. Um, and so my just broad understanding is it's trying to think of like an overall, ar overarching 
kind of big picture strategy that should inform the different moves that the U.S. in particular, but you know whatever uh, country is performing the analysis, what they should be doing. And so it's having kind of a systematic approach rather than random intervention here, random not intervention there. Is that a very 10,000 foot view or in what ways no, is that that's wrong? that's not far off. Um, after I say something about this, by the way, I should say something about what the center is going to actually do because I didn't get to that. Oh, yeah. but, uh, uh, but in terms of what grand strategy is, um, no, I don't think you're far off. The term comes in for a bit of skepticism and, and even ridicule at times because it's a bit highfalutin. Um, uh, ironically, at the Bush School, we're training a lot of future diplomats and and, 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 and operators, and operators don't like the term grand strategy because they're out in the field, and there's something strange about this notion that there's this high-level strategy kind of, you know, channeling the various organs of government in the same direction. Um, but I guess the point I would make is that you, need, you have to attempt it. So, um, you know, great powers, countries in general, need some kind of framework or set of principles for thinking through kind of what your core interests are and how those relate to your policies in the world, or else it's all aimless. Um, it sounds a little bit like bothering to have strategic development for like, uh, like, like the Bush School, we have strategic planning. So it's sort of like trying to think about a holistic, strategic yes. international plan. And what makes it grand is that it's, you know, statecraft at or or thinking strategically at the highest level nationally. Got it. So, you know, not what is our policy toward El Salvador, but, you know, what regions of the world does the U.S. care about and why? What does that mean for the, the investments it makes in terms of alliances and aid? It's like if people I remember from their history classes, like the Marshall Plan or some, like, overarching plan, that would have been the grand strategy at that point in time. So that's a good example. Um, you're talking about the Marshall Plan, a key initiative in the early Cold War. Um, you know, if you look at the historical literature, containment is the grand strategy that's kind of orienting those key initiatives in the early Cold War. The idea, the idea being to quote contain Soviet influence, um, and then eventually, if the Soviet Union is contained, it will kind of break up and wither away, which many say it did. Now, the Marshall Plan is key to that because in order to contain the Soviets, you need to rebuild Western Europe in the late 40s, which has been heavily damaged by World War II. There's this fear that a vacuum of power has been created there. It's, there's a lot of disorder and turmoil. How can Europe get back on its feet? The Marshall Plan is meant to help with that. You help rebuild Western Europe. That, in turn, helps contain the Soviets. So that's a good example of a grand strategy kind of relating to a concrete policy mm -hmm. on the ground, but as anybody who does policy will tell you, the, the, the reality is very messy. So um, policies like the Marshall Plan are responses to real crises in the moment, and then in a kind of iterative process, people like George Kennan and others in the government thinking about these things are trying to relate, okay, let's do this in Europe because it's going to further containment. But it doesn't mean they just developed containment on day one and had a detailed plan of action for how things were going to go. Got it. Yeah. Well, it was, it was nice of you to say the Marshall Plan was right and then explain to me how it wasn't right. <laughs> it was actually containment. <laughs> no, it was. Well, yeah, it's a, but it's a key part of Part of it, it's yeah. Part of it. They, I think probably the key initiative, yeah. So let's come back, to the, uh, come back to the center because I, I wanted to kind of put in frame for people what grand strategy is so they have a way of thinking about the activities that you intend to do. But tell me a little bit about what your hopes and dreams are for the center, what you'll be able to do. Sure. Well, I mean, we have a, a mission, which is I uh, brought in the conversation around, you know, this topic of what American grand strategy should be. Uh, now, how to uh, achieve that mission a lot of it just comes down to human capital. And so that's where all the investments are here in the early going. So we are going to hire two uh, tenure-track faculty into the Department of International Affairs. We have a search ongoing for a historian, and Andy is actually leading that search for our department. And then we'll search again next year, and that position is yet to be defined. We need to think a bit about 
what would be best for the center and the department and the school and so forth. Um, beginning next year, we will also be hosting a, a pre-doctoral fellow, so uh, a PhD student writing a dissertation, as well as a post-doctoral fellow, a recent PhD, a recent graduate who's kind of writing their first book. Um, we will also, we've already been doing a bit of this, we're going to host programs, um, speakers, conferences, uh, workshops, and the like. Um, and the final key piece, we're going to bring in a professor of practice, um, a retired policymaker, to be a, the executive director of the program. And so myself and Jason Castillo, the other academic director, we're going to kind of work hand in glove with the executive director to kind of set the year-to-year you know, -year agenda of mm -hmm. the center. And it, I think that captures the best thing about the Bush School, which is the marriage of academia and policy. And so we're going to try to realize that in terms of the mission of the center. So the, the big piece is just ramping up your intellectual capital. Find some experts, um, or some more experts. I know we have some. Like we do. We do. Um, and build on the existing strengths, on, which <laughs> existing is why we got the right center here. to begin with, yeah. mm -hmm. because we have good people in our department and in our, and by the way, not just in the department, but throughout the university. Uh, we're, we're working quite heavily with folks in the history department, for example, to sponsor programming and support the research uh, that they do and their students. And so, uh, you know, if this works, it's going to draw in a wider community than even just the, the very talented group of people we have in the Department of International Affairs. And what are the, what are the different backgrounds for people who are looking into grand strategy, I mean, is it uh, is it is it usually a political science background? Is it uh, international affairs background? What uh, is it? Histor is historian pretty common? All, all, oh. and um, and in fact, if you look at our faculty affiliate page, um, you know, Greg is one, Andy's another. So folks that focus on who have a, an area specialty like Greg. Folks like Andy, who specialize in international security issues, military technology, and, and grand strategy. Um, I'm a generalist. I do theory and history. We have historians who specialize on um, the American Army and um, the American Army in Germany. Uh, we have um, we have policymakers. Larry Napper is one of our affiliates who who uh, retired ambassador, and so. Um, it is truly interdisciplinary, and not just across academic fields, but between across academia and, and policy. I think the unifying element is basically, do you care about these broad issues of what is the national <coughs> interest, what are the threats to those interests, how should the U.S. respond, etc. So I'm going to touch on uh, one more piece which you mentioned, so I want to give you an opportunity to say something about it, which is the funding structure. So you mentioned part of it is the... Uh, uh, all Britain and part of it is from the uh, Koch Foundation and I know the Co uh, Koch brothers can be kind of politically charged and so that might create some concerns among some people so tell me a little really? bit. Really? Are they politically charged? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, there I go, understating things. Thank you Greg. <laughs> so I mean what's, what's uh, yeah, what does that structure look like? How much influence do they have and what types of questions people are being able to address and what your center gets to do? I mean, how does that play out? Well, I, you know, academic centers are supposed to work a certain way and ours works that way, which is basically you at the, you know, at the Bush School level, we develop a vision and a plan for what we want to do. And then the donors tell us if they want to support it. And then they more or less get out of the way. And really the only, you know, there's some accountability in that um, this is a five-year uh, grant to start. And uh, donors have every right to say we don't, we're not satisfied with what you did after those five years. But in the meantime, um, as is appropriate, you know, we're entrusted with the major decisions about the program. So um, it's been a good partnership so far. and. Uh, I've had no issues. And the, and the product is going to be not just the development of human capital, but the production of books and articles, right. uh, academic articles, policy articles that we're going to try to brand, right, with the, yeah. the centers. The centers. That's, uh, that, that's the metric of success is going to be do the people affiliated with the center 
actually write and say things that people in this grand strategy conversation care about and respond to. And I think secondarily, um, you know, we have a policy engagement mission which is really important, which is um, do people in the Washington quote conversation care about what we have to mm -hmm. say? Uh, so uh, those are the two missions, an academic one and a policy. And we'll be judged by that. Good. Um, well, um, I'm, I'm excited to see what the center does. Um, I'm glad we've been working together for a few years. I'm glad you're in charge of it. That Jason Castillo character, not so sure about, you know. Um, but no. It's no accident that John is the first <laughs> person that's here. Uh, but I'm excited to uh, to see the things that the uh, that it publishes and the and the types of ways in which it influences the conversation. Which now is maybe a good time to go ahead and transition a little bit to talking about grand strategy and what are the what is the conversation, I guess. And so we've talked a little bit about what the center's gonna do and what grand strategy is, but what is the conversation? I mean it strikes it strikes to me that you know that the US is in the midst of shifting how it thinks about its role in international uh, affairs and it was uh, it looked something different under President Obama than it did under President Bush and then looks like something else now under President Trump. And so what what do these conversations look like? Well, um, I mean, we alluded earlier to, to President Trump, and um, um, he is many things, but first of all, he's a disruptor. <laughs> and I know disruption is, is not often desirable in government, but in this case, um, I have to say that's kind of the point of the center, not to destroy or disrupt for disruption's sake, but to open big questions. Um, and Trump does that mm -hmm. um, for uh, uh, maybe without as much foresight as we'd like or follow through, but but he does open the question. So does he know he's doing that? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> uh, again, you can't you can't pick your agents, right? They just appear. So um, no, but you know some of the questions, frankly, the debates he's provoked. Um, why is the United States still kind of the prime mover in NATO? Um, you know what are the role of America? What are the role of our alliances in the Middle East? Um, you know what are the threats that are worth you know having four deployed forces and and risking war? What well, what is the point of all this? So that those are the kind of broadest questions, but um, they're also more applied questions. So um, you know, let's say you are concerned about Russia and it's near abroad in the Baltics. Well, how do you deter Russia without you know? unnecessarily increasing the risk of nuclear war. That's something that Jason Castillo works heavily on. Or there's new domains of competition and conflict like cyber. Um, you know, is great power politics the same in this domain as it's been in other more conventional domains or different? That's something Andy is thinking about, among other things. So, um, you know, in the best tradition of the Bush School, we're asking some of the big theory-related questions. What is the <coughs> definition of the national interest? Do you define it territorially? Do you find it ideologically? Um, and then more applied policy questions. You know, what's going on in Saudi Arabia, for example, and what does that mean for American interests? Uh, well, this is, I think, an excellent place to, uh, to end this segment. Uh, I'm really interested to see, I think we've done a nice job of setting up questions and Greg and Andy have been patiently quiet. Um, so we'll bring them into the conversation. I really appreciate you coming and spending the time tonight yeah. and talking about what's going on in the center. And uh, we didn't get to talk enough about presidential deceit, um, which we should have, but there's a whole episode on that. Yes, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, you can do a whole new book. Um, but I'm really looking forward Trump to. Ain't no FDR. I'm, <laughs> <telling> <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not writing that. Book. <laughs> what is he? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks. Thanks, John. Yeah. Welcome back. This is the, the time, John, where we try to kick some of these general ideas around in terms of current policy issues. But I, I want to start out by asking you, you, you cited containment, right? The, and most people would say that was the grand strategy that uh, drove the United States of America's foreign policy from the late 1940s in through the 70s. 
can you give us some other examples uh, when you think of grand strategy of of what that looked like in the real world? Sure. Um, I mean, actually, the, there, the other clear example, I'd say, is the one that the center was set up to um, not undermine, but to debate, which is primacy. So um, uh, our colleague, Chris Lane, um, has an excellent book, Piece of Illusions, where he basically argues this has been the policy from the 1940s on. But I think more broadly, folks agree, at the very least, from the end of the Cold War on, um, the basic point is, once the Soviet Union goes away, the United States is the only remaining great power, superpower, and really the point of American grand strategy since has been to keep things that way. Um, the United States doesn't want any competition in the international system. Um, and one thing that I think is quite striking is the role of alliances in all this. So how does primacy work? The key thing is, if you protect other powerful, wealthy countries like Germany and Japan, it, it reduces their incentive to become powerful and militarily like you. And so... And that was one of the points of containment, it, right? It, it, it was. The, it, first, the first Secretary General of NATO famously said that the purpose of NATO was to keep the Americans in, right. the Russians out, and the Germans down. Right, and um, succeeded in all three. And, and, and you, and again, I think there's a legitimate debate to be had about the cost-benefit on this. It's um, uh, it, it's not clear that this wasn't a fairly smart thing to do if you could afford it um, for a time. I think the sense is now, um, and I think Trump captures this as symptom, is um, you know, have we reached the point where this is not sustainable and the costs? are starting to outstrip the benefits. Um, it's expensive to keep other potential great powers down indefinitely um, because the international system is a fairly rough and tumble place and so uh, normally states are uh, have some incentive to kind of protect themselves and not be protected by an external patron which is what the U.S. has been doing for a while. So um, that's the other I'd say clear example of a, of a grand strategy and you can find language consistent with this in government documents from, you know, uh, 41 through, even through Trump, so, yeah. Andy, is there some other, uh, are there some other grand strategies out there? Uh, let's go back to the Cold War and, and really the end of World War II and the origins of our Cold War strategy. Arguably, it's oversimplifying a bit to simply to say that our Cold War grand strategy was containment. Yes, that was a, one component of it. But for the U.S. and Britain, um, even during World War II, the plan was after World War II, and this was set in motion during World War II, uh, the plan was to set in motion uh, the construction of an open, liberal, international economic order uh, that would prevent the resurgence of economic nationalism, beggar thy neighbor policies, and mercantilism that we saw during the 1930s that many viewed as contributing to the onset of World War II. Um, during the first half of the 20th century, we went to, through two world wars. And a lot of policymakers were determined to do whatever they could to avoid that from happening. So we had this vision of what a world, an open world order would look like. There's an economic component to it uh, that over the decades evolved in this, what we now call globalization. And, and to support this economic opening, um, a number of multilateral agreements and institutions were created. Um, you know, originally it was things like um, Bretton Woods and GATT that evolved into the World Trade Organization. Um, all put in place to manage what became globalization. And we still need, need to be able to do that. So arguably during the Cold War, there were two components to our grand strategy. Building a liberal, open international economic order, um, which was the original vision, an open order. Um, that was derailed to some extent by the need to confront the Soviet Union. And the strategy component there was containment. And that's what gets the most attention when we look at back Cold War grand, at, um, Cold War grand strategy. John's right to focus on 
containment, now the Marshall Plan was a component to that. Um, but we were also working with our allies, especially uh, our European allies, and eventually also Japan, uh, to build an open international economic order. Um, arguably since the Cold War ended, um, and I think this started with George H.W. Bush, we returned to that vision. Uh, a new world order? Well, it wasn't really that new. It was the original vision for world order that we came out of World War II. Uh, and the Soviet Union and the Cold War were no longer in the way. Uh, yes, the U.S. came out of this number one as the unipolar power, uh, or the dominant power in a unipolar system. Uh, and yes, yeah, sort of nice to be number one. Is that sustainable? Um, and it seems to me that during the post-Cold War period, we've seen um, the discussion of what U.S. grand strategy should look like evolved. Because initially it was, oh my God, the Cold War is over, what do we do now, right? John Lewis Gaddis, an historian, um, you know, wrote a really short piece in the Atlantic not long after the Cold War ended, talking about uh, how dogs chase cars. And um, the dogs know what to do when they catch the car. Well, we caught the car. Right? And so, you know, what's the dog do now? You know, wanders around the car a couple of times, you know, maybe does a number on the tires. Um, <laughs> nothing happens, you know, jumps up, looks inside the window, there's nobody there, no passengers, no driver. What's the car do now? Um, chase bicycles. Well, arguably, you know, we're doing something. I don't like that going to cyclist. Um, but, um, so Saddam Hussein was a bicycle that we chased. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, or a smaller car. You know, we're, chasing, <laughs> we're chasing Volkswagens instead of big limos or something like that. So initially, the idea, the question was, what do we do now? And then there's the realization that we're, you know, the Cold War didn't produce multipolarity. You have some prominent theorists thought that's what we ended up with, or would end up with. You know, the Cold War ended, and we're going to be in a multipolar world. Um, people like John Mearsheimer and Ken Waltz made exactly that argument. And it sort of, the logic always escaped me, you know, how you get 2 minus 1 equals 3 or more. Um, but that's what the argument was. Maybe we're there now. It wasn't a quantitative argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not quantitative scholars, so you're absolutely right. Um, but it quickly turned into a discussion of, um, well, we're number one. What do we do with that? What do we do with the unipolar moment? For some, it became, well, let's extend it. You know, more well, this is primacy. Definitely. This is primacy, primacy yeah, There's right? a proliferation of <laughs> yes. terms, all meaning the same thing. Yeah. Primacy, hegemony, preponderance. Exactly. So, uh, and primacy has taken different forms. Um, under some administrations, it's been more liberal than others. Um, Mearsheimer argues that it's been consistently liberal. I don't see George W. Bush having been that liberal. Um, well, supportive of the of a, of a Pretty open trade oh, system, right? Yes, yeah. but you know, just part other of the areas, not so much, especially during the run-up to the Iraq War. Well, I don't see liberalism at work there. There's a lot of liberal rhetoric I, I do, in a big way. But yeah, there's a lot of liberal rhetoric <laughs> that was appropriated by the Bush administration, but I don't see it as being liberal. Um, the Clinton administration was more liberal. Um, you know, their catchphrase. Um, so by liberal here, you mean spreading democracy? Yeah. Yes. And, well, and openness more and, and openly. And, 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 economic, and economic openness, the yeah. Washington consensus and it's, and it's open. economically. It, there's a political dimension, democracy, and an economic dimension, which is basically free market capitalism. Right. Right? Um, and the catchphrase for the Clinton administration was engagement and enlargement. And essentially that meant engagement for the purpose of enlarging the democratic community of free market economies. They didn't quite put it that way, but that's what Tony Lake's argument and Bill Clinton's argument was all about. That's what the U.S. role should be. Um, and but, that's if, what but, if, but it failed, right? Because if the, if the test cases of, of, of that strategy, the Clinton-era mm -hmm. strategy, were, were Russia and China, right? We were going to bring post-Soviet Russia in encourage them to open up their economy and become a democracy. And we were going to bring China into this globalized 
uh, open world economy, and, and through that they were going to become richer, their middle class was going to become bigger, and eventually they'd become democratic. So that's fair, yeah. right? Early on it was easier to be, it was easy to be relatively optimistic about the prospects for Russia, in part because of the economic problems that the Russians were facing. No, democracy didn't take root um, and develop in the way it was expected. Remember also at the time there was a tremendous economic opening in China. Right. That didn't lead to political opening. Right. And now even the economic opening uh, <coughs> being constrained. Um, so arguably, yeah, a lot of people were op more optimistic back in the 1990s about the prospects for these two major powers. And and and, and, should have right. been. and primacy failed too, right? If if primacy is George W. Bush after 9/11, that failed. Right? It, well, got us, it got us bogged down in wars in the Middle East that the subsequent presidents all thought were a bad idea, although they've had trouble getting away from them. Yeah. Uh, certainly didn't spread democracy. Well, I think, you know, I think the common element between what Andy was talking about with, with the liberal dimension, what I was talking about with the power dimension primacy is, I think for some time now, the prime American goal has been to basically snuff out balance of power politics abroad and replace it with something better, which has been some combination of American-led hierarchy and the spread of liberalism. And the wager was the hierarchy creates space for liberalism to spread, and once it's locked in, it won't matter as America declines because liberalism is so wonderful that nobody's going to kind of go back from it. How's that working out? Well, this is this is where things have gotten, and again, this is the whole, I mean, again, this is, I like to think of Trump as a symptom, right? He's a symptom of all sorts of things. He, he, he thinks very um, uh, crassly about the national interest, which maybe you have to do when, when, when the, this wager is not paid off and great power politics is back with us, and liberalism has not clearly swayed the masses in the way that I think a lot of folks anticipated. Um, so, so let's, for both of you guys, let's, let's set aside possible uh, objections one might have to President Trump's domestic politics, to the, the chaotic way that he runs the government, and all of these things. And, and does he have a grand strategy that kind of fits, John, into your preferred restrainer let other people, right? The New York Times today says that the, the president talks all the time about getting out, of, yeah, getting out of NATO, right? Getting these troops, you know, get, get the troops out of Syria. What are the troops doing in Syria? They're fighting ISIS. Well, let somebody else fight ISIS. That, that's, not, that's not an irrational, and in fact, it seems to me it's kind of an impl implementing a, a restrained strategy, right? Yeah, well, I mean, And then taking on China, you know, China is our competitor and maybe our enemy. Why are we trading with them in a way that makes them strong? I mean, there's there's a lot to say here. Um, and I can't get to all of it. You have about um, five minutes right. left. Um, for those that are interested, I would encourage you to read Stephen Walt, who's probably the most um, eloquent, you know, realist commentator in the, the public media. He writes a regular column for foreign policy. And if you follow his columns on Trump, they all kind of say the same thing, which is his instincts aren't bad, but he's a disaster, right? So, and this is the problem with realism having come from that tradition. The actual political agents that embrace any of our ideas don't tend to be the best at politics or policy. So um, I don't want to really think about what, what the implications of that are. But the um, <laughs> and Truman were pretty good. Well, they, I mean, that, yeah, but they were, they actually were liberals at their very core, but because they understood the way the world works, they, they operated in a realist fashion, um, despite their identities and beliefs. But that said, yes, I think Trump has many realist instincts. The problem is he doesn't, there's no there there. You know, he's never thought deeply about any of it. And so, you know, if you want, let's say you are a good realist and you want to kind of um, slowly retrench the United States from its exposed positions it took on as, you know, the preponderant power, you want to do it carefully. You want, you know, you want to say, all right, we're, We've taken on too much in Europe. Let's slowly start preparing the ground, make sure the Europeans 
have a credible plan for their own defense as the United States slowly draws down. Or in the Middle East, you know. So, but this is all implementation. The the the, the yeah. thrust is okay. Uh, yes, I mean, I actually think that um, in his basic instincts, he does capture. Um, many of the ideas that have been percolating in the realist community about grand strategy. The problem is we get... You, you heard know, it here first, folks. Well, this is the problem. People of bad faith have used that as, you know, the usual gamesmanship. Op-eds have been written basically saying, you know, these people are Trump apologists, and that's just ridiculous, but, um, but too tempting of a rhetorical jab to pass up for the usual suspects. Andy, do you think that there's... that, that that there is a Trump grand strategy, and B that it's that it is the 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 Barry Posen, Steve Walt, restrain John Mearsheimer restrainer strategy, uh, except implemented in a hand-fisted way. I I do think that there is a grand strategy of some of sorts. Um, the, the most clear thing I think we know about Trump is that he's a mercantilist. Right. He's an economic nationalist. Right. He's a nationalist. Right. Right. Uh, and right. Trade is not win-win. Trade is win-lose. Yeah, he's a modified. He's, he's a populist nationalist. Right. And that goes back to his, his domestic support, his core support. I think, in a lot of ways, he is pursuing a realist strategy of restraint. Um, he's doing it in a ham-fisted way. He's doing it in a crude and lewd way. Then you'd expect that from a Trump. Um, but a lot of, I think that a lot of what realism holds near and dear, you, you can see in the Trump administration. And I'm not saying realists ought to be apologists, um, but it's curious that people like Steve Walt are quite as hostile to Trump as they are. Um, you know, realists tell us, you know, Mearsheimer, focus on the great powers. Well, you look at the strategy documents coming out of this administration, the national security strategy. The national defense strategy. It's all about major powers and nuclear posture review. It's yeah. it's not about proliferation and, and, and terrorists getting nuclear weapons or other WMD. It's about the major powers. Well, that's what realists tell us we ought to be focused on. The major powers. So Trump is Trump and the White House is focused on Russia and China. Yeah, uh, focused on Russia. That's for well, sure. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> focused in the pocket of, I mean, whatever. H.R. Um, Master was focused when he wrote yeah, that document. Yeah. Um, and, um, but in other ways, too. Um, real, realists aren't terribly enamored of multilateral institutions. Neither is this president. That's for sure. Right? Uh, realists have been raising questions about our commitment to NATO Europe for decades. Uh, this guy's doing it too, um, again, in a ham-fisted, crude, and lewd way. Um, and part of it would, is about implementation, I think. Um, now, if you're going to exit Europe, you do it gracefully. Um, you know, letting your allies know ahead of time about what your plans will look like. You don't take a wrecking ball. I mean, that's just, that's disruption on steroids. Yeah, you want the EU to work. If yeah, you're a realist, exactly. Right? Because, yeah. anyway. Well, most realists, I think, are probably indifferent, and, and they're skeptical that the EU... Better on balance, has it? <laughs> but um, you, do, you at least want the major powers in Europe, um, Britain, France, Germany, to step up, right, to balance against Russia if that's what needs to be done. Um, in East Asia, folks have long raised questions about U.S. posture. Although even Mearsheimer says there are the major problems that rise in China, and, you know, um, not thrilled about China becoming a regional hegemon, even in, in East Asia, much, much less more probably. Uh, so you're probably going to hedge there. Um, China is what this administration is focusing on, it appears more than um, you know, we, we talked about a, a rebalanced Asia-Pacific. Well, that was always about China. Um, this administration is doing it even more than the past administrations have done. I'd say so, one exception yeah. in, in the Middle East is, you know, realists have been fairly critical of, you know, being the hired muscle for, mm -hmm. you know, um, problematic allies in the region. And um, 
I think the Trump administration has doubled down on that. Um, uh, the Iran, one. The Iran yeah. focus yeah, with the was, Iran was focus. not is not something I think that really. But, but, yeah, but otherwise, but, I agree with Andy. But, but yeah, I think Aurelius has been critical all along of our involvement, deep engagement in, in the, the Middle East, East. Not especially just Iraq. Yeah. Especially yeah, Iraq. Just, and the continued um, engagement or presence, involvement, however you want to characterize it, in Afghanistan. Yeah. I think maybe it's time to, uh, since we have such a nice crowd, our podcast audience can obviously see the crowds that have gathered around us. Picture them very carefully. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but maybe we can take a couple questions, and I think maybe the way we do this is we should repeat them okay. so our, our, our audience, our podcast audience can hear. So I'm wondering which flavor of grand strategy do each of you subscribe to, and do you all agree <laughs> on the same on the same line. Probably not. So the question, uh, in case you couldn't hear it, is which flavor of grand strategy does the panel prefer? We'll start with Andy and we'll work our way over to to me, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I, I, there are too many of my present students and so I usually don't come out this early in class. <laughs> um, but I do come out. I'm a liberal internationalist. I like division that emerged out of World War II. Um, and uh, we were more free to pursue after, uh, after the end of the Cold War. I, I don't think that George W. Bush was a very good example of how to do it. Um, you know, he basically you know, went to the United Nations and said, we're going to Iraq, um, and either you're with us or against us, um, but we're going. And you're, helping, you're welcome to come along, but you're either with us or against us. That's not liberal internationalism. I take international institutions seriously, both um, political, military, um, and economic. And I, it hasn't succeeded across the board, but I still think it's our best shot. Um, I, I agree with realists that the U.S. isn't going to be um, number one indefinitely. I think that we should be investing our resources in building the kind of world order we're going to be comfortable in when we're not number one. Excellent. I'm, uh, I, I, I prefer the vanilla flavored grand strategy. Uh, What's that? Literally, literally <laughs> and figuratively. I, I'm not convinced of the concept yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let John and the center convince me that the concept is useful. Uh, I'm, I'm still a skeptic. That uh, each useful has brought in several million dollars. Yeah, well, <laughs> please don't air the family laundry. Uh, but I, I, I'm kind of for a mongrel grand strategy. I mean, I, I, I do think that I, I like international institutions, particularly ones that America built, uh, which are most of them now. I, I think that. I think globalization, while it's gotten a, a raw deal uh, uh, recently in the United States and in parts of Europe, for, for good reasons, has successfully brought more people out of poverty than any other kind of global approach to economics than we've seen in world history, uh, and has brought, has brought untold prosperity uh, in a historical sense to all sorts of people. I, I think that the United States has an interest in preventing countries that don't share our fundamental values, and here I'm a little bit liberal, with becoming hegemonic in important world areas. I don't think that the area I study, the Middle East, is necessarily a centrally important world area. So like Andy and like John, I was very... Uh, much opposed to our the focus of our policy in the Middle East in the last 15 years, uh, and I think we should be concentrating more on Europe and 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 particularly East Asia, which are the motors of the world economy, besides us, besides North America. So I I have a kind of a mix. I, I, I like some liberal institutions. I like some realist balance of power politics. I'm a restrainer on the idea that you can go in and make people have systems of government that you like. Uh, and and I, I think that we ought to pick our spots. In that way, I'm not, you know, I, I would argue with primacists. But I don't, I, I'm, I'm a mongrel. You're good. Yeah, I should, I should just say, I kind of alluded to this, but um, 
I'm not going to, I mean, I'm going to pigeonhole you, but, you know, area studies folks, diplomats, again, grand strategy doesn't rub well. I said this in class the other day, my grand strategy class. If you're the ambassador to Saudi Arabia, you were chosen to basically manage that relationship on the ground, and you have a wealth of contacts and experience to do so, and now you're told, hey, we have a grand strategy we're sending down to you. Uh, <laughs> I, you should, know, I should just know we don't have an ambassador no, in Saudi Arabia right did. now. The um, Trump administration left so, that position vacant. They've nominated someone right. recently, but uh, I don't think he's been confirmed yet, and he's certainly not in place. But this is a challenge. Grand strategy is an enterprise basis, right, between concept and practice on the ground, which is messier. Uh, in terms of my preferences, um, I just point to an article I wrote with Sebastian Rosado of Notre Dame, a realist foreign policy for the United States. Um, I think I would just encourage kind of two key moves that come from that article. One is actually thinking about what are core interests and what are peripheral interests. I think one of the problems in American grand strategic discourse is everything's important, and it, that just can't be true. Um, the other thing is um, balance of power politics can be your friend. Um, you know, if realists have are right about anything in a descriptive sense, you know, we shouldn't have to help others so much to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, that's the really strange thing about uh, primacy in American strategic thinking, the utter lack of confidence that any other country unless properly led and, and provided for, will take care of itself. Um, I, I'd like to give balance of power politics a little bit more of a try. Um, others might point out that whole first half of the 20th century problem where we did give it a try. Um, but, um, and That's this, right. We taught the Germans a lesson in 1914, and they hardly bothered us after. Well, uh, <laughs> this can go down a dark road, but um, it's good to be the United States when those fights break out. I'll just say that, and not they're fighting over there and not over here. Ocean uh, helps in that case. It does, and that's a whole other. <laughs> we got two of them. So, so yeah, basically core versus periphery, and then in terms of the core maybe give balance of power politics just a bit more of a chance than we have. And you might be pleasantly surprised that the Japanese, the Germans, and others still have a little fight left out. So Justin, who convinced you? Which, oh, which, which flavor are you, are you going to order? Oof. That's tough. Um, well, I definitely, um, I mean, free and open markets, to your point, uh, I mean, there's no other way, I think, to look at this other than they've generated untold wealth and prosperity and lifted, you know, billions of people out of, of poverty. And so systems that keep open, uh, economic free financial systems, that's their track record. I mean, right now it's kind of a not popular time to be saying that and they do have their disruptions, but all you have to do is look around the world to see the evidence for that. So. Whatever helps protect that, and then whatever helps protect open societies in general. I'm liberal when it comes to open societies and open markets. And Sounds that like way, liberal so. international. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to fight stupid wars. Though. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we have time for another. That's, just, that's a really another. good rule. Mm -hmm. Don't do stupid yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think somebody said that already. <laughs> somebody, somebody famous said that. Well, yeah. you said it a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, uh, in the new age of political polarization, is grand strategy even possible? Uh, if so, uh, who sets that strategy? And if not, uh, how do we find the middle? So the question from the audience is, in an age of politicization, is, uh, uh, is grand strategy even a choice? And if so, who, who sets those pro uh, priorities? And if not, then what? That's a great question because, if, I mean, one of the things about containment is Democrats and Republicans yep. basically followed it. I mean, one can argue with the at the margins, whether you know they, they implemented it in different ways, but there was a consistency across partisan lines uh, during the Cold War. And the same was true with support for an open international economic order. That's true. That was bipartisan as well. That's true. Well, in fact, one of the impetuses for setting up the center was there had been too much agreement across party <laughs> lines for too long on, on key assumptions. So now that seems strange, but I think it's true. Uh, one thing I'd point out about the Bush School, the Bush School is great because you have debates about these issues and they're not partisan. So just as a matter of how these debates are going to unfold within the confines of the Bush School, I think all of our preference would be to have a debate like we're having. 
liberal internationalism versus realism as opposed to Republican versus Democrat, because you can find some strange bedfellows. Um, uh, there's an evolving um, debate on the progressive side about grand strategy that's really gotten kick-started recently, um, and there's a surprising amount of overlap with um, Liberal restraint. Friends of the Charles yeah. Koch Foundation, if you will. So, uh, uh, you know, I, you, and this happens throughout time. Uh, this is when things get interesting, when it's not easily partisan. And when you take ideas seriously as opposed to just partisanship, that tends to happen. But, but the question remains on the table, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in a polarized political atmosphere, can partisan shifts and you know we have a two-party system yeah. no party's going to be in power for for 50 years to, to implement a policy where everything is politicized uh, you know Republicans were very critical of, of President Obama's foreign policy even though they probably couldn't identify the grand strategic uh, uh, impetus behind it Democrats were very critical of George W. Bush's foreign policy mostly because they didn't like the Iraq war Right? Can, it, the old adage that foreign policy stops at the water's edge was basically never true, but it's definitely not true now. Yeah. And so it seems to me that, that developing a grand strategy that's something more than four years long is a very, very difficult thing in a polarized partisan political atmosphere. I think this is going to be a test of uh, whether structure matters. And, and what I mean by structure is does the external environment whip your country into shape a bit when it has to? So um, we can afford all this ridiculousness now, but when things get serious, let's say if China does rise to become something close to a peer competitor, or the Middle East becomes, you know, literally uninhabitable for American forces or whatnot, you know, this is when people have to step step up and stop the games. Um, I don't think partisanship is all games, by the way. No, I think they're actually they're serious differences. Yeah. But I, I don't think we've really had the test of, 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 of people's willingness to work together when they have to, because right now there's just a, not enough external impetus to do so. I think that we have uh, arrived at a stopping point here. And I, I this is a discussion that could go on for hours. <laughs> Uh, you know, but hey, it's already going on for decades. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not something that we want our podcast listeners to have to wait until for us saying, well, in the third hour we will discuss, <laughs> you know, the issues of South America on this. Uh, so I think that we should wrap here and thank our hosts mm -hmm. at Downtown Uncorked in Bryan, Texas, uh, for providing us with a lovely space for folks to listen in and. Uh, and to our panelists for coming and out tonight, keeping us some company. And, and an audience. Thank and you so much audience. for coming Thank out. Thank you, audience. Yeah. And Justin, you want to take us out? out? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so thanks again. And we will be recording, uh, doing a recording with some former Bush students next week. And we're looking to do another live recording in a couple weeks. You can follow us at our Facebook page, which is just at Bush School Uncorked. You can follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes podcast, also at Bush School Uncorked. And uh, thank you so much, and thanks for listening. Thanks again, gentlemen, and looking forward to doing it again soon.